This is Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a series-based podcast focusing on surgical and medical education and featuring expert interviews and practice-changing discussion. Our host is Dr. Kara King, a member of the Cleveland Clinic's section of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. Dr. King is also the director of benign gynecologic surgery and associate program director of the Cleveland Clinic's MIGS Fellowship. This podcast is a collaboration between MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons. We'll be right back after this message. This podcast is made possible by Boston Scientific. To learn more about Boston Scientific, please visit bostonscientific.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of Boston Scientific. And now, Dr. King and Dr. Tommaso Falcone. Okay, so today we are fortunate to have Dr. Tommaso Falcone. He has been the chair of the OBGYN department and Women's Health Institute at Cleveland Clinic for 17 years. He recently transitioned over to London this past September, where he serves as chief of staff, chief academic officer, and medical director at Cleveland Clinic London. Very big move. Um, And he's also the editor-in-chief of JMIG, amongst many other accolades. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk about where we're going in women's health. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we're really excited to talk to you today. Just to start, though, tell me about your transition to London. How has that move been? It has been excellent. So, as you know, the idea is, is that um, I was chair of OBGYN for quite a while here at the Cleveland Clinic, and obviously the department expanded tremendously. But there does come a time when you feel that you've done what you can do. And I had been uh, chairman here for three terms over 15 years, and therefore, it seemed that it was time to transition to another opportunity, another challenge. And uh, as you know, the most important thing about being a leader is to make sure there's a good succession plan. And, um, and the person who obviously took over from me as the chair is an outstanding person. She is a Cleveland Clinic trainee. I've been around for a long time, and I think I feel very comfortable with the fact that she's now leading the uh, department and the institute and so therefore it gives me the opportunity to meet another challenge which is to be as you stated in london england where the cleveland clinic is opening a high acuity surgical center i still maintain uh, academic involvement in north america as part of as you said editor-in-chief of jmeg as well as on practice committees at different societies like you said i'm sure it was bittersweet to leave right of course you know it's it's like Seeing your children, you know, like hey, they, they need to leave sooner or later. In <laughs> this case, out. I left. That's right. <laughs> kick them out. That's no, right. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, sooner or later, it's bittersweet, you know, but you want them to be successful and, you know, and leave. And so, therefore, the same with thing with me. It was built. But I think, again, as long as you know that you've got great people that are, have taken over different components of the department and involved in different areas that have been my personal interest as well as the broader interest of developing an academic department of OBGYN. So yes, this was the great time to do it. It was uh, an honor to have been here and built it, but I can only tell you that uh, there are really great people that are now here that will make it even better. Yeah, I am extremely lucky to be under the leadership of Dr. Ridgeway now. Yeah, yeah, she's really great. Yeah, she's a Good. great role model for for everybody, but especially for us young female That's surgeons. Right. Exactly. I think there's a new generation of OBGYNs that are really making 
their, the mark and they need a leader that reflects who they are. And she, I think, is the one that will do it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So you're doing a great job in that transition. (laughs) Talk to me about the new Cleveland Clinic London just briefly. So it looks like it's opening for patients 2020. Right. So we're opening for patients to to be seen in the outpatient clinics next year in 2020. The hospital itself opens in 2021. It's going to be, as I stated, a high-acuity surgical hospital. So it's basically only going to have surgical intervention a lot of ICU beds. It's going to be post-cardiac, post-neuro, intra-abdominal surgery, colorectal, liver, you name it, orthopedics. So a lot of high acuity, which fills ICUs and fills beds. We will, in fact, not be doing any of the medical components unless they're related to the surgery. So we won't have a renal failure floor or a, you know a floor that deals with pneumonias in winter, et cetera, et cetera. So high acuity interventional hospital. I see. So therefore, the the type of teams we'll be recruiting are neurosurgeons and cardiac surgeons, GYN oncologists. Uh, we won't be doing menopause or infertility, but we will be doing a lot of surgical intervention. Excellent. Endometriosis. I was just going to ask that. So will Absolutely. there be a footprint of MIS? You know, right. GYN there will surgeons. be a footprint uh, of MIS because a lot of minimally invasive gynecological surgeons, but and also the colorectal surgeons have an interest in it, and a variety of others, so urologists that have an interest mm-hmm. in it that will be doing a lot of the surgery. Anything to do with a lot of surgical intervention, like urogynecology, will be there. Perfect. Yeah. That's good for us yes, who it are is. interested in moving over to England yeah, That's someday. right, for those that have an interest, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of endometriosis, speaking of your footprint that's still here in right. Cleveland, you're back here this week yes. operating. We're doing a plethora of endometriosis yes, cases. Right. From from the neck down. From the neck <laughs> down, yeah, exactly. Right. We drew the line at the pericardium today. Yeah, that's right. right? We did, that's right. <laughs> yeah. We were very close to the pericardium today. A, a little close for <laughs> yeah, comfort. Yeah, too little close. Yeah, exactly. So as you, as you know, the endometriosis center that which we developed was in response to what I thought at the time was a deficiency in what's available. Endometriosis is a multidisciplinary team approach. You need a team. It's not, in my opinion, something where, you know, it's just a solitary person in an office saying, I'm I'm gonna excise endometriosis. I believe it's a multidisciplinary team, not only of surgeons that have an interest in different aspects of it, chest surgeons, urological surgeons, colorectal surgeons, gynecologists were obviously the leaders, but for the broader importance to patients. So, for example, infertility specialists. If a woman feels that infertility is also important for her, we have those that are interested in egg freezing, uh, answering the infertility components, ovarian tissue cryopreservation, for example, women that need to have an ovary removed, and we can freeze their tissue. We need pain specialists because, again, those that deal just with helping them cope with the pain until we get the surgery or post-op. So this is a big team Mm -hmm. of experienced people. And I felt, because we are a referral center, that that was lacking here. And there are many good doctors out there, good surgeons, but we get, obviously, the ones that have failed elsewhere, as in most big systems. And for this reason, we, we started the endometriosis center about five or six years ago. And the clinical component, and obviously now we have a bigger group, at first, it was just um, myself and another uh, gynecologist, and then we brought in a lot of other people, like yourself, that happy have to be an, here. <laughs> they happen to be here, <laughs> and uh, that are interested in that. And then again, being part of a team, 
you know, knowing full well that we have the backup. But, you know, also is important to it is research. We had a collaboration with basic scientists and, of course, our clinical scientists that will describe the clinical outcomes. As you know, we've uh, presented many papers, published many papers, uh, many videos on different educational aspects of endometriosis, basic science in collaboration in Kansas, and therefore all this to come up with not only a center of clinical excellence, but also a center that has an interest in developing research to promote the future of what we can do for the impact of this disease on women's health. So our center is very broad. We have a big group of people, as you well know now. We have a strong research component. I felt it was lacking, and and I think now that we uh, meet the need, and um, yes, I am back this week, you know, where endo week, as I call it. It's for my those favorite that are week. In, a favorite week. <laughs> um, so that, you know, like I can serve as the person that can give a historical perspective and some uh, unique experience in uh, managing uh, complex endometriosis cases. So I think that we're very proud. It's always about the team. It's never the individual. In fact, it's always about the patient. But the team is the one that uh, is responsible for making sure that the patient's outcomes are best. To truly elevate the care. Elevate the care, that's right. Yeah, today in the operating room, I think you were on tip number 43 for us. That's right. Clinical experience. Helpful tip number 43, (laughs) that's right. Yeah, Yeah, Only because, as usual, you know, the the old, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it, good judgment comes from experience, right? Absolutely. And experience comes from... Bad judgment. And, and I appreciate you making a few of those, maybe. That's right, that's or, right. At least your learners have made a few exactly. of those. Exactly. Like, yeah. you know, you know, the bad judgment is say, you know, like, I can take off this lesion off the diaphragm, yeah. and then Just all of a sudden more. you say, it looks like the lung. I think we're in a different cavity. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have really worked hard to build a multidisciplinary group of expert physicians, expert surgeons. I'm curious, how do you define an expert surgeon? What moves somebody into that expert or master right. field? There's uh, really good surgeons, you know, out right. there. And that is basically um, surgical experience. So really good surgeons are those that have a skill set, you know, that you can tell them from residents and all that. And those are really good surgeons. You know, like they're um, safe. They know what they're doing. The expert surgeon is those that can give a further dimension to the management of that patient. Now, the dimension can be in many categories. It doesn't have to be like, I know how to remove excised endometriosis. That's a good surgeon. But the expert surgeon will say, you know, like, not only I feel I can do this, but I can also teach it. Remember, education mm-hmm. is not for everyone. Right? Like some people you say, wow, these are really good surgeons, can't teach. Exactly. Uh, others are okay surgeons and can teach well. So the expert is someone who can bring the other dimension. It could be education, which I think is really very important. It could be research. So not only do I do this, but I bring the dimension of I'm trying to understand why the people have this disease, whatever it is, cancer. I'm trying to develop new strategies for treatment. So the expert, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is someone who's, a, who's very good at surgery but brings that extra dimension, whatever it is, so that a patient feels that this person reached a different level of experience with that disease process or a p- approach to the patient. Yeah. But if, but again, there's nothing wrong with being a good surgeon, you know, and you don't have to have that that dimension. But the expert, I think, has that extra dimension. Yeah. 
You know, it reminds me, you know, Dr. Ted Lee is who trained me yes, at my of fellowship. Course, yeah, yeah. And he used to talk about this triangle of surgical skill. And yes. the base of it may be knowledge, the second may be technical skill, yeah. but the very top of it is creativity. Right. Right? So creativity in the right. operating room. And creativity is something that can be taught. You, know, like you, you think you so? Can't. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, not everyone's going to be a Picasso or, a, you, know, sure. or a, you know, Michelangelo. You have to have inspired, you know, like... Uh, someone can be truly inspired. Yeah. And that may be different aspects. I don't know how you become this inspired uh, leader. But someone who says, you know, uh, I can reach a, a very high level. Mm-hmm. Hard work, you know, as you say, you know, like success is 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration. <laughs> right. Because it's all about hard work. Right. I think that a lot of people that put in the time, they, you know, they're always there, they're always learning. Mm-hmm. And, and be open-minded and say... I don't agree with everything, but I, I can learn something from them. Everyone can teach me something. I've learned everything, uh, many things from other people. Absolutely. Many, many things. And of different levels, by the way. You know, like someone who's much more junior right. than I am can teach me as much as someone who's senior or more senior can teach me. So we can all learn something. But as Ted said, I agree with you, there is a certain level. And to get there, I still firmly believe that it is something that is learned behavior, mm-hmm. but it takes a lot of work, a mm-hmm. lot of work, differential work. Someone who's got a natural ability can get there faster, but I think anybody can get there. Right. And it's interesting in the OR because I try to do things the same way every time in regard yeah. to setup and my port placement yeah, and my yeah. instruments and my energy. But you still want to have that yes. uh, little part of you that's always yes. questioning, is this the best yeah. way? And so I agree. Sometimes having the junior learners who've never seen it before yeah. raise questions where you're and like, you yeah, that be, makes right. complete sense. Exactly. And you have yeah. to be open-minded about it. Yeah. That, you know, especially the fellows. Right. You know, like the, the fellows can even, even uh, you know, senior residents, but fellows are trained physicians, surgeons. They always have something different yes. that they've brought into the operative uh, field or in the in the clinic, you know, like have a different approach. So I've learned a lot from many people, and uh, there's always something that you can learn. And, and I think that you can go into these society meetings, for example, yeah. because a lot of people said, you know, those are of the past. You know, why go to a meeting? Mm-hmm. And they're in the past. I can read a journal, you know, an article. In, online, like, right. Online, I can talk to uh, someone. But, you know, in fact, there are some very subtle aspects that you really have to go there. We're, we're still a community. Absolutely. And we need to go there so that we can learn because something will not appear in a journal or something else. So somebody, you go to a meeting and you say, well, I never realized that. Now that you've talked about it for the third time, <laughs> right. I, I understand what you're trying right. to say and, uh, and therefore I will bring it back. So I feel that these meetings do have something special that we will not learn from books and mm-hmm. from journals and from randomized trials. And therefore, they're a very important aspect of what I feel is the communal learning behavior. Yeah. yeah. I, I tend to always leave those feeling re-inspired, right? On the plane, right. I'm always like jotting down all my new research yeah. ideas and, and right. all and, of that. And I think it's a research ideas, is, it is true. You know, I've gotten yeah. many research ideas you, of which, you know, I write, you know, th- 13 pages and, and do two. <laughs> But but I'll tell exactly you though, right. it, it, you, you, there's always something something unique that you learn that you come, or at least you should. If you go to a meeting, can you say the last ten meetings I've learned nothing? That's on you. It's, yes, <laughs> it's on you. That's right. Right. Yeah. 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 So you've dedicated the majority of your career to endometriosis. Yeah. Yeah. 
How come? Why? Right. What interests so this, you about this disease? It's, it's always by accident. So when I started my, my, I finished a fellowship in infertility in 1990, so uh, almost 30 years, you know, not quite, but uh, 29. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, my interest, in fact, was polycystic ovary syndrome. It's a metabolic disease, and we were talking about insulin resistance. So at that time, I started a clinic, but there were many people interested in polycystic ovary syndrome, and no one was interested in endometriosis. You know, and the pioneers were just coming out at that time. I just finished, like I said, my fellowship, and the pioneers, uh, like David Redwine and mm-hmm. others, you know, were coming out and saying, "Hey, you know, we're not doing this right. You know, there's something different that we have to understand." Again, it was just uh, a year, 1990, where minimally invasive surgery was taking off for mm-hmm. gallbladders and the whole thing. And so they all would come up to me and say, well, you know, there's a new concept of uh, this disease, fibroids and endometriosis, but mm-hmm. endometriosis especially, they didn't know what they were doing. They would just look in with a scope and do nothing. <laughs> so they said, are you interested in doing these cases? Because no one else wanted to do them. Yeah. So I said, sure. You know, like, And so in a, in, in a setting where... Nobody was interested in actually looking at these patients. Oh, they're you know they're they're crazy. They have pain. Right. You know, or it's too difficult. Right. You know, like why are we going to tackle can't do this? It. Yeah. We can't do it because it's you know what are you doing for benign disease? Right. It's you not know, like cancer. It's not cancer. Yeah. And so it didn't have the cachet of like oh I'm a cancer doctor I'm I'm curing, but these women there were many many women that, that were suffering, and it was just fortuitous. You know, people say. Well, we don't know who to send them to, so let's send them to Falcone. And I was interested in listening yeah. to what they had to say. And again, these pioneers were coming out with these ideas of how to manage these patients. And so therefore, I would see these patients and I decided, I said, well, these pioneers are coming up with this, but they can't be the only ones pushing the envelope. So at that time, I said, well, let's do it in a more rigorous way. I was trained as an investigator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore, I said, let's try this in a more rigorous way to understand if any of these ideas can be brought into uh, clinical trials. So we started the clinical trials and we started to look at the different aspects of it in the lab at the same time. So we were talking about oxidative stress. Yeah. Why would a lesion so deep cause infertility when the right. tubes and ovaries were completely normal? Anatomically fine. Anatomically fine. Yeah. And really, the lesion was retroperitoneal mostly, very deeply infiltrating, mm-hmm. and everything else is fine. Why would she be infertile? And so I said, well, what is the peritoneal environment for this? So that's when we started my research, saying, let's look at the peritoneal environment. Why do they have pain? What's causing the infertility? What's causing this? And again, fortunately, I was at McGill University, and then I came here, yeah. where I, there was a lab that was interested in oxidative stress. And one thing I said, what can we partner? It's always about a group. And as more and more research came out, you know, not from only from us, so I started to think that, okay, we are, we're doing the clinical trials, we're doing the research, but, you know, we need to educate the next generation. Right. And so therefore, you know, we started these fellowships, and so, you know, people have to be trained in advanced surgery, and then we said, okay, now we have to see that the patient's requirements are not being met just mm-hmm. by me alone. Then we have to teach colorectal surgeons, urologists, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So... It just evolved that as a there was a deficiency. No one wanted to help these patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, of course, very different. But uh, in, in those days, no one was interested. And therefore, it just evolved that way. And then I was very fortunate that the patients, you know, were interested in participating in clinical trials, et cetera. 
So it's just one built on top of the other, and you know, this is where it is today. I think the most important thing, of course, is to always set up for the next generation, and therefore people like you, obviously, that are members of the uh, endometriosis center, but that's how it evolved t- till today. You know, I had other interests as well, but that was been the core, like the uterus transplant program, Just obviously. Just a minor side. Minor side, yeah, minor, a minor thing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so that is obviously part of the broader aspect of being uh, part of an innovative group. But endometriosis has always been the, the core of what my um, uh, both clinical interests and research interests have been. It's amazing how far endo has come yeah. nationwide, but especially even here at Cleveland Clinic. Right, exactly. It's, it's been and, and I think that uh, we had the vision to look at it as a big team, and we recruited people that will take this forward even more. Yeah, absolutely. What facet of endometriosis research do you think is up and coming? When I look back, we have not made that much progress. We have I made know. progress surgically. Yeah. There's no question. We understand better what we have to do. But we really, you know, in the last 15 years or so, we've been pretty much doing the same thing. We all generally agree <laughs> that we have yeah. to excise the disease. And, you know, we're very aggressive. We want to be in a safe way. Right. But that's, that hasn't changed for a long time. And we still have a lot of disease around. <laughs> we do. Right. So therefore... Or we're catching more of it or something, Yeah. Right? We're ca- yes. Yeah. And uh, it's the environment. Right. Uh, exactly. So the the idea, though, is, is that uh, what, what have we done from uh, medical therapy, for example? Right. Really nothing. Mm-mm. So medical therapy has always been suppressive medical therapy that generally has nothing to do with a direct effect on the disease. Mm-hmm. You know, like basically we're causing women to change their hormonal environment to mm-hmm. a hypoestrogenic environment. Even the most recent medication is okay, it adds a bit, but it is really not a disruptive technology or a new approach. Mm-mm. There is nothing new in the last couple of decades in this medical management or a direct approach to the uh, this disease. So therefore, we have to work harder and looking at different aspects, how you can go after the disease. Now, now, the problem is that endometriosis is a little bit like cancer. It is. Right. And the reason is because it's like someone says, I'll find a pill to you know cure cancer. Which one? Lung right. Or you know, breast cancer. Those are right. two different diseases with two different genetic components. Right. So the same thing with endometriosis. We always thought about it as one disease mm-hmm. or premature. It just progresses, right? And yeah. it's not. It's mm-hmm. like, so Different endometriosis, premature births, cancer, mm-hmm. these are broad terms. Mm-hmm. Endometriosis then, the reason why we failed is we've always looked at it as one disease. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore now, you know, what will probably help alter the disease process of the ovary is going to be different from what can be the altering the disease process of the uh, cul-de-sac or the peritoneal components or a combination of all of them, mm-hmm. or someone who has primarily pain, and mm-hmm. so on. These are different disease processes, although they may histologically somewhat look similar, mm-hmm. and we call them all endometriosis. But I think we realize that since it's such a broad disease, so unless you're knocking out a hormone, which is nothing to do right. with disease, but simply that disease is required, right. then you're, we're never going to make it. So the, the future is to accept that uh, endometriosis is you know, a catch term for a group of diseases mm-hmm. which have different pathophysiologies with perhaps a final trajectory, mm-hmm. like prematurity would be 
you know, whatever is final, the baby's coming out. <laughs> okay? Right. So that's, that's the, the final pathway. Yeah. For endometriosis, the final pathway is what we see. Yeah. So if we look at it that way, then we may be able to alter different components mm-hmm. uh, of uh, one component, one phenotype of this disease, rather than saying, okay, this bullet is good for everything. No, mm-hmm. probably just good for cul-de-sac or endometriomas, whatever. So even research trials that try to put everything in mm-hmm. is, are not going to succeed. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what I think the future is. So the good news is I think we're trying to realize that it's that. The bad news is that now we've just realized it, so we need another catch-up. Yeah, exactly. But you're right. You know, you look at certain pelvises, and the 20-year-old who has stage 4 deeply infiltrative disease, it's a different beast than the superficial stuff that you sometimes see. Exactly. And I... I'm not sure either that, you know, like, it's not like the cancer where you go like one, two, three, four. Mm-mm. You know, like, I, th- I think you go to zero to four Absolutely. or zero to one and stay at one. Absolutely. But you may have a lot of pain, you know, which are just a bit different. Or you can just show up as a four because exactly. the underlying pathophysiology is different. You know, quite honestly, most diseases are that way. If you look at tuberculosis, mm-hmm. there are those that, um, you know, get tuberculosis, but the host response is such that, you know, your your whole lung comes off and the others... You know, right. they they do fine. So therefore, I think that for those that are doing, you know, as part of individual now, it's broad. You know, we still have to uh, education. We still have to ha- uh, help patients cope with different aspects of their quality of life, which is horrible, and so on and so right. forth. But if you're looking at research, I think that the main one is that everyone has decided, has learned that mm-hmm. now we're, we're dealing with Endometriosis is just not one monolithic disease, and therefore you have to take it apart and focus on one. Each of those separate tracks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Join me in part two of my interview with Dr. Tommaso Falcone on fostering leadership to build a successful team. We'll be right back after this message. Today's episode is brought to you by MedJobNetwork.com. Ready to start your career in your dream location? Looking to expand your skills in a dynamic new practice setting? Start your search today at MedJobNetwork.com. MedJobNetwork.com sorts thousands of physician job opportunities in every specialty and all 50 states. Visit us once, create a profile, then let our technology bring the right jobs to you. There's no need to search again and again. MedJobNetwork.com does all the work for you. It's time to take that next step. There's a great new career opportunity waiting for you at MedJobNetwork.com. In this portion of our podcast, we'll be speaking with Dr. Megan Evans, women's health advocate and assistant professor of OBGYN at Tufts University School of Medicine. In this episode, we'll be discussing how Dr. Evans began her career in advocacy, as well as the overall importance of OBGYNs advocating for women's health rights. So, on today's episode, I am thrilled to have Dr. Megan Evans. She is an OBGYN out in Boston, where she's an assistant professor at Tufts University School of Medicine, and she also serves as the associate director for the OBGYN residency program. Welcome, Dr. Evans. Thank you for having me. Of course. So we are lucky to have you as a steady member on our future podcast because you serve as a specialist within advocacy. It's your forte and one of your passions. And so I'm just curious, can you tell me, how did you get to where you are? What's your story? Sure. So I would say my interest in 
advocacy in medicine really started probably in medical school. I went to medical school in Washington, D.C., so it was easy to get involved in legislative issues. I could just hop on the metro and head to the Hill if there was something active going on. Um, I became really active in medical students for choice, and then things went from there. Uh, When I got to residency in Boston, I joined local ACOG groups and then slowly through the years took on more leadership roles. And a lot of my leadership interests surrounded advocacy and how residents, medical students, and you know, just OBGYNs in general could get involved in advocacy. So I currently serve on the political action committee for ACOG. I recently rotated off the government affairs committee on ACOG, and then I'm currently the ACOG district one legislative chair. And I would say really my passion and niche in OBGYN is advocacy and medicine. That's so interesting. You know, I feel like a lot of us get into medicine and we get really deep into the clinical part of things. Um, and we sometimes forget how important the advocacy um, role is in our in our field. So why do you think advocacy is important for us as physicians to prioritize um, in our careers? I mean, I would argue it's probably one of the most important things that we do. Um, we really need to use our voice as experts in the field, not only for our patients, but just for our specialty in general. Policymakers pass legislation that directly impacts how we practice medicine and especially how our patients access care. Uh, And of course, legislation can be very positive and impactful for our patients, especially um, for some of our at-risk patients, um, low-income and our minority patients. But it can also be incredibly harmful. And I feel that silence from the medical community can be perceived as acceptance, which is why it's so important that as physicians, we make sure we make time to use our voice to educate our legislatures and advocate for our community. I love that. So so silence can serve as acceptance, right? So by us not saying anything, it's just us going along with the norm that's happening. That's a really interesting perspective because I think a lot of us, me included, we get so, again, busy with our clinical aspects, we don't even sometimes look up and realize that by us not actively having a part in this, we're maybe supporting things that we don't necessarily want to support. Right, exactly. Yeah. So what, I'm just curious, what has been the, one of the most rewarding projects that you've, that you've worked on within advocacy? What are you most proud of? Do you have any top things that have happened? Uh, that's a great question. I, mean, there's, I feel like there's varying degrees where I have been really proud of things that I've advocated for. And you know, I think one thing is important is that being a, an advocate doesn't mean that you jump on a plane and go to Washington, D.C. and meet with your representatives because advocacy really happens at every level. It happens in the exam room with your patient. It happens at the hospital level and committees you're involved with. It could even happen in your community. And I think um, in reflection, one of probably recently that felt like such a huge success was getting the Reducing Maternal Deaths Act passed prior to the end of the congressional year, which was this past December of 2018. And the bill had been up at the Congressional Leadership Conference. We had a lot of support, but it really wasn't making any headway. And uh, we, probably about 30 of us, flew into D.C. in December and really did a final push to get that bill across the finish line. And kind of at the... 
12th hour, um, President Trump signed it into law. And we're already seeing the positive effects of that, where states are getting additional funding for maternal mortality review committees. And now there's a lot of talk across state lines about how we can best interpret this information and really work to decrease maternal deaths, especially preventable deaths, and really work to address disparities um, with maternal mortality. You are a hero. That's so exciting. I love it. And that's all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.